Hello and welcome to the Leathercraft Masterclass with me, your host for this evening. Or it could be first thing in the morning on the treadmill. I really don't know. That's the beauty of the podcast. You can listen to them whenever you want to, doing whatever you're doing. You could even be stitching right now. You could be driving, could be doing anything you want. But welcome to the Masterclass podcast. Now, for those of you who don't know who I am, I create a series of online video courses teaching you leathercraft from the basics, moving on to advanced techniques, also making courses on how to make things from start to finish. So project courses from boxes to card holders to watch straps to attache cases, weekender bags, you name it, we have it. So if you're interested in taking a look at some of our courses, if you're watching this on the website, Click on the course guide to take a look at what we have. Leathercraft Masterclass. Eliminate confusion, gain confidence, and master your craft. So, getting on to the topic of this podcast. This is actually a Q&A. Recently, I went onto Instagram and I put out a story sticker, which is... To allow people to ask questions. So I put the question out. Hi guys, I'm doing a podcast. I'm looking for questions to answer in the podcast. What do you want to know? What do you want to hear? What opinions do you want to hear from me? And normally the podcasts that I've done previously are based on what I see in the industry, things that I think people should know, things that I think people want me to discuss. But this one is more a direct question and answer. So I got lots and lots of questions, too many to go through. I picked a few and I put them out there as examples of of what I might be talking about. But I've zeroed in and I've selected a shorter list of, I think, the highest value questions, um, which I hear over and over again. So popular questions that I think need answering. So without any further ado, I'm just going to dive straight into the question and answer. So question number one on the list And a lot of these are business-based before I move on. Um, Not all of them, but one thing I have noticed is the questions in Leathercraft are becoming very much more towards business. I think a lot of people are deciding to move into it, whether it's full-time or more commonly as a side business to either fund your leather and tool habits or just to earn a little bit of extra income on the side, which is always good and gives you an excuse to keep crafting. But uh, yeah, a lot of these about uh, business, which is um, quite surprising. But I also think that's a good thing. I think the the craft is evolving a little bit more. And people who enjoyed leather craft as a hobby are now thinking, "Hmm, maybe I can take this to the next level. But it involves getting, you know, special tooling sometimes, sometimes investing in machinery, whether it's a skiving machine or a hot foil machine. And a great way to earn money in order to do that is by creating a profit. So selling some of your goods and and using that money to advance your tool shop, essentially. But yes, a lot of these are about business. And the first one is directly about business. And it reads thusly, how to make your logo and business name legit. So the way I read that question is, how do you make your logo and your business name look professional? Now, the logo and the business name is very, very subjective thing. And it's a very personal thing. Um, but I think the biggest mistake, first of all, moving into the mistake side of things, is to make it too personal. Because there are a lot of businesses out there with focusing on the logo here. They'll have a logo of something that really means something to them. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, there's there's five leaves on there and each one represents uh, one of their grandparents that lived in the woods. You know, the, like it's something quite random that you would then have to explain to someone to understand what that means. But the business logo should leave an impression on someone, if not what you do. So you could put a logo on there that's obviously the, the you know, the international sign of leather. Or you could put a tool on there that indicates that you do handcrafted work. Um, But a logo should leave an impression, a lasting impression on someone about 
what your business is like, whether it's a very classic looking logo, which gives people an idea of you are involved in a very traditional style of work, or if it's something very contemporary, uh, giving an indication that you do more modern designs and that's your mindset and that's your ethos uh, behind the whole business. That is a creative space that is used for communicating to the customer. And I feel that a lot of people make the mistake of making something extremely personal that only makes sense to them. Now, if you're in business and if you've been in business for a while, you'll know that the story you should be telling is the story for the customer rather than your own personal story. It should be a story of their journey where they're the hero of the day. Uh, you know, if they're looking to buy luxury leather goods or they're looking to buy more rugged leather goods, they have an idea of why they're buying that. The look that they want to achieve or the lifestyle that they want to lead, it has to fit in to their story more than yours. So try not to make it too personal to the point where you have to explain things to people. Uh, I've made the mistake myself, but if you have to explain something to someone, to such an extent where they, you have to, you know, really, well, well, this represents this and then that because of that, this. And if you remember one thing from what I'm saying here is if you confuse, you lose. It's as simple as that. Customers don't want to be confused. And if your message isn't very clear from the outset of what you do, then they'll simply go to somebody else, uh, potentially. That's why for the Leathercraft Masterclass, you know, just reading that, it, it's it's quite legible writing. Um, there's a little twist. The A on masterclass, masterclass, as you probably know, is a wing divider. So it kind of communicates to people a little bit more about what I do. But it's very simple. It's not overly complicated. You know, I haven't called it Hyde Academy or something where people have to think, was it Hyde? What does that mean? Like, like leather? That must be a training thing. or Leathercraft Masterclass. So it gives people an idea of, I teach leathercraft uh, and I teach it in a position of more kind of intermediate to advanced stages of leathercraft. So I'm not going to the absolute beginner. This is more of a step up for people who want to advance from YouTube or researching what they can online or saving as many posts on Instagram as possible for inspiration and trying to get little tidbits and put them all together and you know, connect all the dots to get an idea of what's going on. This is very, a very simple logo and a very simple message, Leathercraft Masterclass. And that's, that's the method that I've chosen. I've chosen simplicity over getting too fancy. My original designs for the Leathercraft Masterclass are names. You know, some of the designs were really ornate and that, but it didn't really convey a message of, of what I do. It didn't really say anything. Um, so I've just, you know, gone for very legible text with an A that's a wing divider. It gives people an idea of, oh yeah, that's a wing divider. That's using leathercraft for, you know, marking out, uh, for a pricking iron or, you know, cutting off an excess or whatever it is. It, it kind of, people look at that and go, yeah, I know what that is. And that's the idea behind it. So logo wise, try and keep it as simple as possible. Uh, my business, uh, prior to teaching, uh, my leathercraft business was Finch England. I still have it, uh, sitting on ice at the moment, but prior to that, there were two other, two other business names. The first one, and I'll tell you, they're quite, <laughs> well, not embarrassing. It's, it's just, it's just not me. It doesn't, doesn't fit with me. The first one is I, I built the workshop that I'm currently sitting in, uh, out of Pinewood, uh, and Cedar and a few other, but it, I called it the the Little Pine Workshop. It was cutesy. It was kind of hipster, which was really the thing at the time. Um, and then eventually that moved on to BST Handcrafted, which means subtle to, to anyone. You know, I mean, it's, it stood for, stands for British Summertime. And for me, it was blood, sweat and tears, which is what it took to get to that point of a business where it, which is actually making sales which is, you know, it meant something to me. But then I had to realize that no one, no one gives a shit really like, <laughs> but it was really hard and, and, you know, to get traction and putting yourself out there and putting money out there and not making any sales for the longest time. And then, you know, just still hacking and hacking and hacking at the work. 
trying to improve all the time, trying to improve how I advertise and how I sell my products. And eventually you start to gain traction and it compounds. And then you start to get a business where you're supporting your mortgage, your, your car, your expenses and, and everything else. And it took a lot of effort. So I switched the name to BST. Another thing is British summertime. It has something to do with time. My biggest seller at that point, what I was known for more than anything, was watch straps. So it had that kind of time, you know, and it fit in. But from someone looking from the outside in, what do what what do I do? I'm BST handcrafted is the name. If they just see that, you know, in a, a post, or if they see that in, uh, I don't know, leaflet. I don't have any leaflets. Uh, a business card or something like that. It will. It's going to take explaining what I do more. If you if you know what I mean. So it didn't fit from where I was going. So in order to get from there to Finch, England, uh, I asked myself uh, a smarter question, essentially. And I think the quality of your business, the quality of your life in general is based on the quality of the questions you ask yourself. Uh, the better quality of the question, the better quality the answer or the solution will be. And the question that I asked myself to get to that point was, okay, what do you want, first of all? What's your vision for the future? And five, ten 15, 20 years from now, my vision was I wanted to have my own store or multiple stores where people would look into the shop window and it's this beautiful ornate shop window in, uh, in London or anywhere else in the world, but with somewhere that was, you know, where there's a lot of people, a lot of traffic, maybe a major city. And you look in and you see bags, attache cases, handbags, wallets, watch traps, but built to a beautifully high degree of craftsmanship. And you look inside and you see somebody in there, somebody is stitching, and then somebody at the back is skiving something. Perhaps they're building a briefcase. And it's beautifully lit, wood paneling all around on the inside, and everything is just displayed so tastefully. You know, that I'm, I'm kind of visualizing this in my mind of, of this is where I want the business to go. This is at least at this point in time where I would be aiming for when I was naming the company. That's where I want to go. Things will change. You'll understand that as you progress. But that is what I had in my mind as a vision. Now, looking through that window and being immersed in that vision, look up for a second at the name of the shop. Take a look at the name of the shop. And what does it say? Now, what's the number one pick for your latest uh, and greatest name and logo? Does it fit with your vision? It's as simple as that. If you think that your logo and your brand name can't evolve to where you actually want to end up, then it will not age gracefully and you will have to change it in some way. So it's all about thinking where you want the business to go. What do you want, first of all? Think about what you want from your business, what you want from your life. And then how does that fit in? Does it work? If it doesn't, try again. But as long as it fits in, into your long-term vision, I think it's a good idea. Um, if you're not sure, keep it simple, but just know one major thing. The likelihood of you still having the same name and the same business in years to come is probably quite low, to be honest. Um, you will probably change your vision. You'll probably change maybe even change your craft. Maybe you move towards one particular type of leather craft and you'll want something that, that conveys that more effectively. So it is very personal, but have something that ages well and have something that's a little bit different as well. Try not to keep it the same as everyone else. One thing I would avoid uh, perhaps now more than it was a few years ago, there's certain words that are, tend to be overused in the leather craft world. Uh, I think atelier is probably the number one most overused thing. Um, there's no dig at people that currently use it, but I think if you're choosing a new name, try and avoid things are, that you see a lot of. For example, if I need to contact someone and I can't remember their name, but I knew it was atelier something, I'll go into my, my Instagram, for example, and put an atelier, and it's just a sea of atelier somethings. Um, so I would probably, you know, if you, if that's your name currently, keep it because you built a reputation on that. But if you're choosing a new name, which is what I'm trying to say, 
then I would probably avoid using something you see a lot of. And not all customers know what that means. It just essentially is a French word for workshop or studio, that kind of thing. Um, you can have a, an artist's atelier. You can have an atelier for dressmaking. You can have an atelier for making glasses, shoes, uh, you know, hand tools. You know, that is all it means is, is workshop or studio. But it sounds fancy, and I understand that, that a lot of people are drawn to that, but not all customers know what it means. And if you're living outside a country that speaks French or a country that speaks, you know, at least speaks French and English, for example, uh, Canada, uh, then it probably doesn't mean as much. So it would be your choice on what to do. But I would look for a name that is as unique as your leather goods should be. Okay. Moving on to question number two, starting a leathercraft business, tips and tricks. Tips and tricks. Lots of tips, no real tricks though. Um, but definitely some definite, you know, benchmarks of, of, or how should I say this? There's definitely certain things that need to be in a business. Now, when you're starting a business, most people start on social media. You start learning how to create your leather goods, and then you think to yourself, okay, I want to put it out to the world, and I want to see if I can make an income on this. Just know that there's going to be a little bit more involved. You don't have to jump headfirst into a leather craft business. Um, you can do it kind of tentatively to begin with, but you will have to get to a point where you make a decision. Um, try not, not to uh, swear here, but shit or get off the pot. Uh, <laughs> essentially make a decision are you going to do this or are you not um, but initially when you're first starting out sure toe dip but just know you're going to get toe dipping results um, but you need to make a decision at some point am I going to go all in with this because uh, I did a side hustle for a very long time and it's not until something really motivated me to start my own business did I just go yeah, this isn't happening. I'm going to have to jump in headfirst and see what happens. And the business took off because I was dedicating seven days a week to it. Um, so if you're thinking, okay, well, I'm going to quit my day job when my leather craft business earns me as much money as the day job, and then I'll switch. That's unlikely to ever happen. Um, but when I did make the switch, I earned more from my leather craft business than the side hustle and my day job combined in quite a short period of time because panic and having 24 hours a day, seven days a week to devote to, to your new venture uh, cannot be sniffed at. So a lot of time, a lot of dedication, and a lot of drive is what's necessary. But uh, starting a Leathercraft Tips and Tricks, first of all, if you're really going to do this, you need a website. Okay, number one, you need a website. And I can't kind of push this enough because i went through a phase where I'm like ah i can do youtube and facebook and instagram and then i don't have to uh i don't have to do the whole website thing excuse me sorry i got a whiskey here keeps my whistle wet uh, i can avoid doing the website thing and and i did that for a long time and the results were just nowhere near as having a uh, as good as having a website it just first of all it makes you look a lot more legit that you're a real functioning business which other people which is important which other people choose to do business with and when you're on instagram when you're on facebook when you're on linkedin twitter youtube tiktok whatever you're using at the moment you're only ever a quick a click away or your customer or potential uh, customer is only ever a click away from somebody else when they're on your website they're a click away from another thing about you where you get to tell your story what you can do for them what kind of value that you're providing them uh, and then you have more of a captive audience than you are on a social media platform that's not to say that you shouldn't have social media. That's the lifeblood of any modern uh, leather craftsman. You need to have social media. You need to get that attention first and then ideally drive it towards your website where you can show people better what you do and more importantly, what you can do for them. So that's an, uh, the first thing I would say is, is have 
a have a website. Number two, number two is an email list. Okay. Originally, when I started out, I had an email list and I sucked at it. And I thought to myself, okay, email lists are junk. It's, you know, everyone says, oh, you need an email list, an email list. People that are saying that are just saying that because, you know, they, it's an email list company. Like, I don't know. Um, what's that? Um, not email monkey. What am I thinking of? It's just, <laughs> um, it's, it's one of these companies that do kind of help you with lead generation, email lists and things like that. Um, anyway, <laughs> that's totally not it. Uh, but anyway, I was wrong. Okay. Email lists are the lifeblood. And I said that already about social media, but this is, this is the second lifeblood of any business is you need to get permission to email people information about your business, about offers, uh, essential information they need to, to, to know, um, ways to give value, uh, that interest them. So, and that's, it just, it just, I can't, you know, I can't tell you how important that is as well is to have an email list and just avoid like the plague putting a pop-up that just says, Hey, keep up to date with our newsletter or Hey, be the first to know, you know, it's just, it that's done. That's gone. Any website doing that is just really needs to evolve. We are now entering the age of you need to give value first before you should ever ask for value on, on their part. Not everybody's going to buy from you. You have to understand that. And that's absolutely fine. But you should always offer people value. So you might be thinking, okay, Phil, uh, I have uh, an Instagram or Facebook or YouTube account and I show how I make leather goods. You've convinced me to get a website. But how can I offer value? real value to someone who just wants to buy potentially uh, a card holder or a, a watch strap how can i give value to someone first you know i just i just make the watch strap we well, have to look at it this way what else do you think they want to know why are they buying a bespoke watch strap why are they buying a custom watch strap watch strap why are they buying an alligator card holder whatever whatever you're making Try and get in the mind of who is interested in your product and why are they interested in the first place and what other interests might they have. You could start out by going, um, sign up to get a free download or, or a link or a PDF on the top seven things to look for in a handmade leather item. Okay. Or you might be thinking of, down, download this PDF, which tells you which colors of leather watch straps pair with what watch face. You know, I'm just, I'm butchering that, but you know, try and articulate that a little bit better. But you're now they're going, oh yeah, well, I have a green watch face. What colors does that pair well with? And what style of watch strap pairs with what style of watch? What's the best for a diver's watch or a dress watch? or a pilot watch, what, what style works with what best. You know, you wouldn't want to put a, um, a rally inspired watch strap on a diver's watch. It just doesn't look as, as, you know, as good. Um, so you might want to say, oh, th this is what to look out for. Or if you're making, I don't know, uh, dog collars or something like that, put something about dogs about, you know, top, top three dangers of, uh, using inferior leathers for your dog or helping people to understand that vegetable tan leather might be healthier to put around just making stuff up right now you know it just something you just have to think about what do they want to know what would be helpful why are they why are they coming to my website are they looking to buy luxury products are they looking to um, add something to their everyday carry style of of you know stuff uh, what other interests do you think they might have and what problem could you help them solve? Because in your PDF, in your download, in whatever you send them in exchange for their email, you can help them solve a problem, but you can also drop in there. Oh yeah. You want to avoid using this type of leather, which could come off on your white dog's neck when it gets wet. So you want to use this and this is the leather that we use in our dog collars. So if you have a white Westie dog, 
uh, it's not going to stain his neck red. It's essentially stuff that are like, oh yeah, I didn't think of that. I didn't think of that. Oh, that's what that's what your competitor uses. That's why you're different. That's why you're better. And you get to talk about your product. But the thing is, you've given first. So you've initiated this kind of sense of reciprocity where they almost kind of owe you something. You know, it's, it's not like, what? Well, okay, now I've given you that information. You need to go and buy this. It doesn't work like that. They have a complete choice and com- complete control over what they buy from you. But just know that if you give value first, you are much more likely to get a sale. So that is the the next thing is generate an email list. Okay, that I think I'm going to stop there because if you have a good website that's clean, that gets to the point that isn't the same as everybody else's and also offers something first, okay? Yes, sign up to this, but when you do, you get a link to a hidden page on the website, for example, or perhaps a downloadable PDF that you've created that will give people some kind of value first. That is like, if you get those two things done, you're okay. So moving on to number three, which is how to find clients. Now, this is really, this is a really challenging one for a lot of people. And I will say this before I I waffle on about finding clients. um, You will have an idea or you should have an idea of who you're selling to before you even start making a product. I can't tell you how many failed business, uh, businesses I've seen in Leathercraft where people went, I want to make this. Now it's made. I'm going to go and find someone to buy it. It just doesn't work like that. You need to figure out what people want, what problem are you solving for them, and then create a product for them. That's how business works. That's how business works. It's very, very simple. So you know, the likelihood of you having like nailed who your exact client is at the beginning is pretty freaking low. So just know that no matter where you start, your ideal client or who you want to target or sell to is going to change quite a bit. Okay. So finding clients in Leathercraft, first of all, actually, first of all, go and have a look. Uh, on your phone, on your Instagram account, uh, go on to followers. Now I'm saying Instagram because most of you are probably coming from Instagram. Take a look at your followers for a second, okay? And just have a little scroll through uh, who's following you. Now you're always going to have leather crafters following you because you're involved in leather craft. You're involved in a community that's vibrant, that's you know uh, willing to share, show off their stuff, and it's very engaging. Absolutely. But what percentage is people who are interested in buying your leather goods that no that have nothing to do with leather craft? Many of you might be surprised to see the vast majority, 90 plus percent of people that follow you are other leather crafters. And it's good to be aware that the likelihood of another leather crafter ever buying something from you is very low. Okay. Now I specifically cater and give value to leather crafters. So I would be very happy if 100% of people that follow me are people interested in leather craft. But outside of an industry that is serving leather crafters, you want to look for as many followers as possible who are actually interested in buying your stuff. Okay, whatever it is you create, whatever it is you craft. And in order to find those people, you need to essentially start looking for them first. So if you make um, bags, for example, who's interested in buying high-end bags, hand-stitched bags, hand-crafted bags, whether it's machine or hand-stitch or whatever you do, if you're making something as an artisan, who's interested in artisanal bags? Who's interested in artisanal watch straps, wallets, card holders, cases, whatever the industry that you're involved in uh, with leather craft, saddlery, bookbinding, upholstery, whatever, where is the attention going for people who appreciate that kind of work? So it could be uh, like style forum, for example. So you could go on to forums and take a look at your target market, people who are buying more expensive uh, goods, whether it be uh, watches or shoes or suits or anything like that. Do you have an accessory that you could create create for these people? 
go on the forum. Even if you don't comment or talk about what you do, at least you'll get an idea of where their attention is. What are they talking about? What's the latest trend that's taking off? What interests them? These are the people who've got uh, an extra, you know, extra income that they could use to to buy your leather goods. So try and focus on where the attention is going for people who may be interested in what you make. Okay, you could go on and follow, uh, you know, style Instagram accounts where you could see what people are interested in following and you can go on there and you can put comments in there and you've got your logo which at this point should be very obvious what you do okay and you can start commenting on everything and then liking people's stuff and then following their accounts and being involved and being visible by people who might be interested in what you create okay but give value talk about okay so you make handmade wallets then you go on to an Instagram account with, you know, half a million followers and you start putting comments on the latest suit and go, oh, this is amazing. I think this, I think that, or, oh, this is one of my favorite colors. Um, you know, it would, it would go so well with, you know, these shoes or whatever and start engaging in conversations with people, perhaps ask someone a question. And then you'll notice that your following list starts changing and you start getting people who are interested in that kind of style. They're like, who is this person? Click on their account. I do it all the time. Someone leaves a comment on something and they have an interesting looking name. Who is that? Click their account. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. Follow them, like their stuff. And then you start getting more of a following of people who actually may want to buy your stuff. Essentially, you need to try and figure out who's going to buy your things, okay? Who's going to buy your, your products? Then where is their attention going? How can I give value to them in some way? And how can I get them to the website in order to show them what I do and how I do it? So how to find clients, it's always a working progress. You're always going to be surprised at what you put out and who's interested in it very, very quickly. So you might have an idea, okay, so it's a single female high earner in a city dweller, and it turns out to be married male country dweller you know you just never know but you have to adapt as you go along to make sure you're offering the right product to the right person another one another question i think is this is a really good one and this is uh this is a real problem for some people okay next question how do you get people to appreciate the craft and stop trying to ask for a lower price i can answer that immediately raise your prices considerably um, if you are getting a lot of people contacting you and trying to kick the tires, uh, see if you're going to budge on price, uh, not really committed to your products and you'll know pretty quickly, always be respectful, always be professional, but just know that if you're getting a lot of that is probably because you're pricing your leather goods at a price point that's slightly above what they're willing to pay. Okay, I don't like using the word cheap people, but price conscious is probably a little bit better. If you're making leather wallets that are $30, you're going to be getting people whose price anchor, which is the price in their mind set by uh, another entity, for example, Walmart or Sainsbury's, uh, they might be going, okay, I, I can go into my local supermarket and they have a section there with, with uh, genuine leather wallets and they're 15, uh, you know, um, you know, for a handmade one, maybe 20, 25, well, maybe that. And then they see your wallet and you're, you're trying to charge 30, 40, $50. Um, hi there. I really like your stuff. I want something handmade, but, uh, do you have anything cheaper or could you budge on price? The idea is to move away from the budget conscious um, unless that's your target market. If you're able to make cheaper leather goods quickly and you can charge a lower price and you're looking to work on volume more than anything, you're probably not making it yourself. You're probably looking at having them made to your designs on mass in a factory, but that's not our topic for discussion here. My preference is to avoid the price sensitive individual range and move up towards people who are serious about 
spending money on something that is made by an artisan. They want finery. They want something custom. They want to have a say in how it's made. But you also want to avoid the no man's land in between price, where you are too expensive for price sensitive individuals, but you are also too cheap for people who are willing to spend a decent amount of money on something. Okay. Now, I can't tell you the amount of times where I've gone to treat myself for something special, whether it's a pair of shoes, whether it's a coat, whether it's um, a watch or anything like that. And I have a budget in mind, something higher than I normally go for. And then I see a really good value on something. And I think, it's just too cheap. In my mind, I'm, I, I want to spend, I want to throw some cash on something. I want to treat myself and I want to buy something nice, something I will enjoy for years to come. And I have a price on that. And I see so many things and thinking that oh, I'd ordinarily, I'd, I'd probably think that was quite expensive for that, but I've, I've gone way beyond that. I want to buy something in this price range and, and this is just slightly under. Eh, it's obviously not as good in your mind. I mean, that doesn't always logically make sense. If something's reduced from you know, 1500 to 500 that doesn't mean it's necessarily always worth 500 but you know, you, you're just thinking, ah, there's a reason it's that cheap, isn't there? There's always a little niggle. You know, they must be earning a profit of 500 so it must be worth 300 Why would anyone pay for you? Know? But when you've decided, I want to spend some money, I've got some excess cash burning a hole in my pocket, I want to treat myself to something nice, you're willing to spend more. And that is the kind of customer you're looking for, ideally. Okay? So if you price your product right in the middle, you are too expensive for price-sensitive individuals and too cheap for individuals willing to spend decent money for a decent product. And I take it that you're making a decent product. So you need to sell at a decent price. Uh, when it comes to making leather goods, my process for, for getting a price is always price accordingly. I don't go buy any formulas. I don't go buy, well, I want to pay for my time. No, this is really expensive here. I took a lot of time and also you can't put a dollar value on the years of trying and failing and learning and adjusting and evolving in order to get to that point. So you go, well, I'm going to, I'm going to pay myself 25 an hour and it's going to take three hours. So plus the cost of materials and postage impact. Yeah, no, like bollocks to all, all that kind of stuff. Price high and work on making sure that your product is the absolute best that it can be. First and foremost, work on your craftsmanship, improve yourself, don't bring the price down, okay? Improve yourself, improve your craft, improve the way you advertise, improve the way you market, try and bring yourself to that price point, okay? Because if you think, okay, no, you know, paying an alligator wallet, asking them to, to pay 1400 is wait, I feel like I'm cheating people. Well, no, if somebody has 1500 to spend on an alligator wallet, and they look at your work and think it's impeccable. Who are you to say that it's not worth it? It's not for you to say it's not worth it. You don't, you shouldn't be the one that decides the price point. The customer, the market will let you know. Okay. If you're too expensive, you're too expensive for the reputation and skill level you currently have. Okay. Not too expensive because you're not worth it. You need to move yourself up not the price down. And that would be my best advice to anybody else is always be evolving, always be improving, never be static. Always look back on your work a year ago with a slight cringe. Okay. If you're not cringing and you look at your work and you think, oh, it's pretty good. You have involved. Okay. You always need to improve, always need to advance and not just in your leather craft, but the way that you communicate with people and the value that you bring. So the next question is, uh, moving away from uh, business now and uh, moving into more uh, leather craft type things, <sighs> who is your favorite brand of leather products and why? That's a very good question, actually. Um, I like lots of different brands. 
uh, for different reasons. Um, I, I look more at particular products than just a brand as a whole. But if I had to say, I would say it would probably come down to two brands, two distinct brands that in my mind stand out above the rest, more because these brands are very true to their heritage and very true to where they come from. Um, number one is Alfred Dunhill. Alfred Dunhill is a brand from London, United Kingdom, and they produce some of the greatest leather goods, English style leather goods, attache cases, briefcases. Um, they also make doctor's bags, Gladstone bags, and a lot of more contemporary stuff as well, which tends to be made in Italy. But their quintessentially English style of leather goods is made in Walthamstow in London, not far from where I used to live and where I was brought up. And they have some very talented artisans there. But what stands out is not just their history and their heritage in that arena, but also the, the type of hardware and the type of leather that they use. They use a mixture of uh, English bridal leather for some things and a lot of uh, leather from Belgium now. But the leather that they use is always impeccable, always high quality. A lot of hand stitching as well, uh, what's known as hand closing, especially on attache cases and things like that. Uh, and their hardware is second to none. I mean, I, I think it's the best hardware on the planet. I might be biased. It might be my style more than anything. Probably is. A lot of raw brass, a lot of cast brass. No idea where it's made, who makes it, whatever the case. It's gorgeous. Um, and I really think it ages well with the leather. It develops a rich patina. Um, so I really commend them for kind of keeping it real. And I bet you any money they make no money from that workshop. It's more of a flagship. This is what we can do. This is who we are, unashamedly English. Uh, and this is what we'll do for generations to come. And I, I kind of like that. And it kind of speaks to me uh, as a craftsman. And I respect that. I still haven't gone there. This year I was meant to go on L London Craft Week and something came up and I just couldn't go on a booked tour of their uh, factory in Walthamstow. So upset about that. Uh, but next year I'm going to try and get... Uh, get that book to make sure i get in there but uh anyway yeah so that's my first one in my my top two pick my other one that i just love for for different reasons is vibrai in paris uh vibrai is a small artisanal shop actually it's two shops in uh, central paris and they kind of uh talk about being the last place in paris where you could just go for a walk in paris and then stumble on this little gem of uh, an atelier, a workshop where you just walk in and discover this luxury goods business, which nobody's ever heard of. And if you haven't heard of them, job done. It's more of a, of a like an insider knowledge kind of thing. But there's one particular bag that they make called Lagar, which is, uh, I believe it means the station in, in French. Uh, the masculine station, Lagar. I'm not quite sure. Anyway, someone will correct me. But Lagar by Verbrai. Um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful bag. And the first thing that, other than the very box-like geometric shape that it has, the first thing that strikes you is actually the lack of hardware. There is none on there. There is a magnet in the top which allows for closure, but it's completely covered up. Even the bag feet are made from solid leather, vegetable tanned leather, sewn on. And it is impeccably made, impeccably made. Uh, the artisans who create it are extremely skilled and it opens up like uh, an accordion. It has like an accordion gusset with a, with a central stiff piece because it's made on actually a, a thin box frame, a wooden box frame. And there's a central piece that kind of reminds me of a wedge of brie, which is, uh, you know, yeah, I guess it fits being French. Um, but it just, it's just, there's something about it that just says beauty and grace and just, it's just impeccably made. The craftsmanship is, is insane. Uh, and I just don't think there's anything, anything out there that can hold a candle to it. Uh, it's a very expensive bag. It costs several thousand, even in just calf leather or goat leather. But they do lots of different kinds of exotics from uh, alligator, crocodile, ostrich. Uh, don't think they do stingray, which would look quite nice. 
but uh, there's, some, there's something about them. And the person who designed the bag isn't a bag designer at all. I think that might be the key to why it's so good is because it's no one's been influenced to make that design. It's just something that speaks to them personally and it just works. I can't explain it. I can't explain it. And if ever you get into designing leather goods to be very individual, that's the kind of reaction you want your customers to see because no word of a lie, I would buy that for my other half as a customer no questions asked you know it's just that good even though i could probably copy it and make it and i would kill myself for doing so because i i can't stand that but i you know it's just there's something about it you know even you can tell by the way i'm talking about it and that's the kind of reaction you want to have with uh, customers to the point where a leather craftsman uh, who could probably make it uh, would want to buy it uh next question uh moving on is organization okay so organize slash setup of workshop where to put tools and store leather my preference is if you have the space have a central table that you can walk around i do not so i will talk about my experiences with uh, organizing a workshop and and setting everything up and how to store leather and tools i have a central table now if you're involved in detail work uh, which most of you probably are, edge creasing, skiving, things like that. Ideally, you want a table that is elbow height. So if you stand upright with your shoes on, hopefully you normally do, then just cock your arm 90 degrees so your forearm is facing or is parallel to the floor. The height of your elbow should be the height of the table, ideally. Now, it's always good to have another table for power work. So if you need to hit something hard with a hammer, or you need to bear your weight down onto something for whatever reason, then something around wrist height is my preference, wrist or knuckle height. So I have one of each of those. Uh, the low table is behind me, which gets less use, and the main table is the one that you probably see in the video courses that I produce. And that is the main one, that's elbow height. So it's actually very high for a lot of people, um, but it is perfect height for me. Now, when it comes to tools around me, I work on the Pareto's Law. Now, some of you might know what Pareto's Law is or you've heard of it. It's also known as the 80-20 principle. So I choose to have the 20% of my tools that I use 80% of the time. Okay, so the, essentially the tools that I use most often at arm's length. So when you're involved in craft, especially if you want to improve or really do your absolute best work, you want to make sure at all times that you're in a state of flow. Okay, what I mean by flow is when you're, when you're really in the zone. You've had times where you're working on something and you've been going for hours and hours and hours and it seems like five minutes. You think it's lunchtime, you look at the clock and it's almost four o'clock in the afternoon. You're thinking, where did that time go? You're in a state where you're not really happy you're not really unhappy, you're being challenged, you're figuring things out, and you're in a state of, of intense concentration on something where time just tends to pass you by. You're not aware of what's going on in the outside world. Uh, you're not thinking about anything else that's going on. You're just intensely focused, like laser-like focus on what you're doing. And that is how you do your best work. Now, what you want to avoid is having your surroundings set up in a way where your concentration is broken. Because if you constantly have your concentration broken, you can never fully focus on what you want to do. You've always done it. You go to do something on the computer. There's a tab open. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And then, you know, two and a half hours later, you close the computer and walk away and you're thinking, oh, no, I meant to go there and do something else, but I got distracted. When you want to achieve something and you want to focus on something and, and do your best, you want to make sure that there are no distractions around you, or at least you limit the distractions. And one of them is searching for tools. So if you have the set of tools, the 20% that do 80% of the work in your workshop at arm's length, you turn to the side, you grab it and you carry on. You can maintain that focus on what you're doing without going, now, where did I put that? Oh, no, it's in there, you know. Now, the rest of the bulk of my tools, the 80% that only does 20% of the work, that goes neatly away in drawers, you know, things like hardware as well. 
Um, and I know where those drawers are. Most of them are labeled. Uh, and if there's any things like uh, woodworking equipment, like a, a bandsaw, drill press, uh, lots of other different things, that is not even in the workshop. That's somewhere else. I'll bring it in if necessary. So try and keep your area clean and try and make sure that you have all the tools that you are likely to be using at arm's length at all times. And even you can make yourself a little tool caddy. And if you know what you're going to be using for that particular project, put it all in the tool caddy and then have that on your table and it's even quicker. Uh, when it comes to storing leather, I always like to make sure that you are storing leather inside cardboard tubes. Now you can get these made quite easily. Uh, there's a lot of places that do them. They're used for multiple things, even in building homes, things like that, sending packages. Um, there's usually lots of places in most countries that produce cardboard tubes. The benefit of using cardboard over what I don't recommend, which is like an ABS or UPVC plastics, is it allows your leather to breathe and you don't have to chamfer or sand the edges of the, of the mouth of the tube essentially on, on plastics um, to avoid scratching. So you can store your leather goods uh, safely and it allows it to breathe. If you store your leather in plastics, the moisture cannot move through the leather especially if you've got a lot in there and i've even seen leather start to smell before a friend of mine had some leather he wanted me to see he'd never used it because it was so special to him and he pulled it out and it smelled like fish and not because it was tanned with fish oil or it may have been but it did not smell like leather i can tell you that um so try and store in plastic tubes now if you do get them made which most likely you will because it's an odd size I recommend a minimum of an eight inch opening so you have enough room to, to roll up your leather and ideally about a wall thickness about five or six millimeters or more if you're going to be stacking them on top of each other with heavy leathers like vegetable tan leathers then a little bit thicker but one thing I'll say is when you get them home they're usually made to order so it's this very strong paper almost card like material that's wrapped around a spindle uh, of desired size then it needs to dry out. You can't just put your leather in there because it's damp. Okay, so you need to let it dry out on the floor. Don't let the tubes touch each other and allow the air to circulate through it. Um, just a quick tip, really. So yeah, that's how I like to store my leather. Okay, so last question. Last question um, that we're going to go through today to round things off is what are the usual SPIs for different projects? which stands for stitches per inch, so stitch density. What are the different, uh, what are the usual SPIs for different projects from watch straps up to bags, okay? Good question, actually. Um, again, this is one of these things where I can easily just fob off the question, it goes, it really depends on your taste. But, you know, some people like to go, you know, just give me the numbers and then I can disagree with them and find my own way, but I need kind of ground me with an idea that I will then reject. Okay, fair enough. So that's what I'll do. Stitches per inch, instead of stitches per inch, I'll uh, talk about it in its most common um, terms, which is just millimeters. Okay, so um, most pricking irons are millimeters these days that you'll buy them, uh, which just designates the distance between the prongs in a linear type fashion along its width. Uh, the usual ones, the usual suspects are 2.7 millimeters, 3 millimeters, 3.38, and 3.85, okay? Which corresponds roughly to 10 stitches per inch on a 2.7, uh, 9 stitches per inch on a 3 millimeter, 8 stitches per inch on a 3.38, and uh, depending on the prick and iron, should be uh, 7 stitches per inch on a 3.85. So, most of them I measure actually it's it's six and a half stitches per inch, whatever the case might be the whiskey. But uh, yeah, so I would recommend starting with the smallest one, 2.7 millimeters. That's really kind of a watch strap range. Um, so 2.7 millimeters is what I would choose for say a dress watch. Okay, so a smart looking more formal watch that you would wear with a suit or smarter attire. Uh, if you were going out to a restaurant, going to a black tie event, you know, that kind of thing, uh, 
or even slightly smaller, but they're more difficult to get these days. 2.25 millimeters is a popular one. Below that, you're looking at vintage irons, which are gonna be in stitches per inch. And I'd probably go down to maybe about 12 stitches per inch, which is uh, about two millimeters. But below that, you don't really get much of a decorative stitch, where it's very, very difficult to get a decorative stitch because most of those won't penetrate all the way through even a watch strap and you'll have to use an awl and then you'll have to find an awl with a 1.25 millimeter width and you'll probably have to make it so practically without having to overthink things 2.7 uh, three millimeters or 3.38 i would say would suit a watch uh, perhaps like a diver's watch or a pilot's watch or even a more kind of a more a rugged masculine looking watch, even if it's a luxury watch uh, like Panerai, for example, uh, they seem to suit uh, a more rugged look. So it really depends on the look of the watch. Moving up to three millimeters in particular, that's a good size for wallets. So anywhere from 2.7 to 3.38 with three millimeters in the middle is, is a good idea for card holders, uh, bifold wallets, things like that. Um, for the finest stitch in 2.27, I didn't mention, I'd probably choose anything up to about 0.45 millimeters. Okay. Uh, three millimeters, anything up to about, uh, 0.5 moving on to 3.38. Then you'll start getting into more bag making territory in my mind. But again, you, you, this is so flexible. Um, in 3.38, uh, to give you an idea that De Havilland travel bag was stitched entirely with the exception of the leather zip pull uh, in 3.38. 3.38 irons, 4Z reversible irons, if anyone's interested. Um, but on that, I used uh, filet chinois mostly 432. So that's more of a 0.55, you know, half a millimeter, half a millimeter or just slightly over for that one. So I would say for clutches, small bags or more luxury bags, you are going to have to do a lot more stitching in that but because it was a flipped bag, it was only certain areas like the external zip, the internal zip and the handles and the handle attachments. It wasn't the exterior of the bag. If that was the case, I'd probably move up uh, to something a little bit larger, maybe a 3.85. Then you start to get into bag making territory, um, larger bags moving into luggage. Then beyond that, you then have to start looking at vintage irons maybe it really depends on the, on the size that you're working with but for example uh, i did the bloomsbury attache case in five stitches per inch which is you know not far off five millimeters per stitch uh, stitching that with a 332 filou chinois which is a thick old thread but if you're making luggage and cases and trunks and things that you know are going to be designed to last for generations then I would start thinking about a larger stitch. But as long as you finish it nicely, it's tastefully done, you've got good angles, and you've got a good ratio of thickness to stitch density, then it looks fine. If you're doing something that's very rugged, the, the stitch is kind of looking straight, then it, you know it does tend to take on that uh, kind of rugged look. But if you want to keep things classy, you can use a bigger stitch, as long as the stitch looks very consistent and clean and it fits with the item that you're working in. So essentially, long story short, it really depends on what look you're going for. It really depends on what kind of longevity you want out of the goods and also the size. It's very proportionate to the size of the leather goods. So I hope that has answered some of your questions. A lot of them are business-based. If you're not into business, please forgive me, but one day you might be. And this might this advice might become a little bit more invaluable at that point. So thank you for listening and tuning in. If you're interested in learning more and advancing your leathercraft, check out leathercraftmasterclass.com. And if you're there already, take a look at our course guide, which will give you an indication of the kind of courses that we offer you already. But remember that we are constantly growing our courses every three to four weeks, depending on complexity, of course. But we are constantly growing our library of courses and there is bound to be something that you can use in every course which can elevate your craft, improve your technique and help you make better leather goods, eliminate confusion, 
gain confidence and master your craft. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.